0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together some of the best-known former Department of Justice officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day, including the investigations of the President and his circle. Today, we're talking about the surprising recent turn of events with Special Counsel Robert Mueller, who delivered his, we now know, 300-page-plus report to the Attorney General last Friday, and we're really privileged to be talking with some of the former Feds who know him best and have worked closely with him. I'm Harry Litman. I'm a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General and also Assistant United States Attorney or Line Prosecutor. I'm in San Francisco today near the U.S. Attorney's Office where I started out and where later Robert Mueller served as United States Attorney under Presidents Clinton and Bush. I'm joined by three former Feds, who are not only intelligent and knowledgeable, but who all worked for many years in offices run by Robert Mueller. Their perspectives, and those of people who worked most closely with Mueller, have been absent from all the TV and podcast discussions to date. So we're very happy that they're all joining us. First, Melinda Haig, a partner at the law firm of Oreck Harrington, who was the United States Attorney for the Northern District of California, the same position Mueller had held before her, between August 2010 through September 2015. And before that, an AUSA for many years. That was in two offices, right? How did that come to be, Melinda, that you worked in two different offices?
1: I got a job in the Los Angeles U.S. Attorney's Office a year out of law school. I was extraordinarily grateful for that.
0: Hard thing to Um, get right out of Alaska. I
1: couldn't couldn't believe it uh, and felt incredibly lucky. And then uh, needed to move back to San Francisco after five years, went back into private practice. There was actually a hiring freeze in San Francisco, so I couldn't transfer. Bob Mueller became the U.S. attorney. And I happened to meet him. We had mutual friends. And I am eternally grateful that he then hired me back into the department. And I worked for him in the U.S. Attorney's Office here in San Francisco.
0: For how many years?
1: I was in that office about five years as an AUSA. In the middle of all of that, as we all know, Bob Mueller became the director of the FBI. So he left us first. And I I stayed after he left.
0: And did you become... Uh, U.S. Attorney without leaving the office? Did you did you ascend, as it were, from the ranks, or did you take off? And no, return?
1: I went back into private practice and was in private practice for seven years, a partner at OREC. Uh and I went from that partnership at Oric back into the U.S. Attorney's Office as the U.S. Attorney under President Obama.
0: Next to Melinda is Martha Bursch, a founding partner at Bursch Shapiro, who was an AUSA in the Northern District of California for some 12 years, Uh, Martha, did you have any sort of special supervisory roles in the the office?
2: I did, starting in, uh, I think, if I can remember correctly, in 2001, I was the um, chief of the securities fraud unit. And then I think in 2003, became chief of the organized crime strike force.
0: And finally, we're joined by Candace Kelly, who until recently was the senior legal director for government investigations at Uber. But before that, Candace worked under Mueller, not just at the Northern District of California U.S. Attorney's Office, but also at the Federal Bureau of Investigation when Mueller was directed there. When were you there exactly, Candace, and what was your position?
3: First year of the Obama administration, I was in the Deputy Attorney General's office, and then I went across the street and and worked for Mueller. So it was the second year of the Obama administration, and I was Mueller's special counsel for national security.
0: So it was after, in other words, Mueller came to the FBI that he brought you over?
3: Yes. So he had hired me as an AUSA here in San Francisco, and then many years later, uh, I went back and served in that capacity. And then I came back and worked for Melinda, who was the U.S. attorney, um, and she was kind enough to let me go back when the Boston Marathon attack happened and they needed some additional help. So I went back again as special counsel for national security, but just focused on the Boston Marathon. I
0: think this is going to be a particularly valuable episode for the insight it might provide on Bob Mueller's decision-making processes and approach as a prosecutor. Just to make clear at the outset, we won't be discussing what Mueller likes to have for lunch or ask you for any sort of personal anecdotes, which I think everyone here knows that Mueller himself has no time for. We will try to reflect on the kind of prosecutor and FBI director he was and draw insights from those reflections, which you are very unusual to have, and most of the people uh, who are commenting on these things really have never worked under him for a second, but see what applies to his service as special counsel, and especially the current unusual landscape we find ourselves in. In fact, so let's start there. On Friday, he turns over the report, the very long and and we now know descriptive report of, of what happened, to the attorney general. And the attorney general turns around on Sunday and reports that Mueller has been either unable or has declined to make any prosecutorial determination on the collusion side of things. And so the attorney general, William Barr comes into the breach and makes his own decision. But we are really in the dark about why Mueller decided not to make a determination and whether what Bill Barr did was in keeping with Mueller's preference and determination. Let's start there. What do we think when we see that 300-page report it will reveal about Mueller's thought processes and his decision not to actually bottom line on obstruction?
1: My guess is, and I actually, when asked about Bob Mueller, I usually start by saying we don't know. Um, because we aren't in the room. Um, and I think, you know, we all have some educated guesses based on our experience with him and our experience in this area of law. But I do like to start it by saying we don't know. But if I had to guess, I there is a Department of Justice policy that you can't indict a sitting president. And my guess is that Bob Mueller would honor that policy um, and would see it as something that he has to follow. And so he would have... Concluded that I can't. I'm not going to opine on whether there was obstruction of justice under the principles of federal prosecution. And in fact, that's what Barr says um, that Bob did not analyze the question of obstruction under the principles of federal prosecution. So, therefore, it is a question for Congress to decide. And uh, it's. I think it's possible that Bob concluded that I should not offer an opinion because that then prejudges the question that is not mine to answer it's Congress's to answer. We can put forth the evidence that we found and developed. We can tell Congress or and the Attorney General what the evidence is on both sides. Here's the evidence that would support obstruction. Here's the evidence that doesn't support obstruction. And then it is for others to
2: decide what it is. That's my guess.
0: Martha, Candace, does that seem about right to you?
2: Well, the question I would have is if if that were true, um, then why wouldn't there be more of an affirmative uh, statement that the underlying evidence that he collected on obstruction was going to be made public or at least turned over to Congress? And my understanding is right now it's unclear how much is going to be. Turned over to Congress or turned over to the public.
0: I mean, that's an excellent point, right? He sort of they sort of get the public coming and going. They say, "Well, it's your decision," but we w- but now there's going to be a whole tussle over the different sources of evidence.
3: I agree with Melinda's assessment that, a first, we don't know, and hopefully we will see that report because obviously this team has been working really hard and. Um, we know many of them, they're an incredibly thorough and diligent, and by all accounts, it's a very comprehensive report. So I think it's really important that that report sees, at a minimum, Congress uh, and hopefully the, the rest of the public. But I agree that given the policy and that the special counsel is not in a position to override a policy, I can't um, see a situation where Mueller would go outside of something. It essentially would be engaging in hypothetical, because that's, that's what it would be. It's not his decision to make. Now, the difference between the special counsel and the attorney general, theoretically, is that the attorney general could override a department policy if he chose to. So I'd love to see how the report actually talks about the, you know, I think Barr makes this jump that because the special counsel didn't make this decision, it leaves it to the attorney general to do so. And I would be I would be very surprised if the report actually says that.
0: It sounds like you guys all expect that he was either hinting or saying straight out, this is for Congress.
1: Well, and he may not have said, this is for Congress. He may have simply said, we can't indict a sitting president, so we're not going to come to the ultimate
2: conclusion, but here's the evidence we developed. He might not have said anything about Congress or the AG. The one issue I have with that is is if his decision was based simply on, hey, there's a policy we can't indict a sitting president, then why does Barr go to some pains in his summary to say that what Mueller said was due to difficult questions of fact and law? I mean, if if Mueller's decision was simply based on, oh, hey, there's a policy, that doesn't present difficult questions of fact and law, it seems to me.
0: And let me push on that a little bit more, because this strikes me as such an important, really a pivotal question for where we are in the whole, um, the whole country's judgment about the president. He didn't have a problem bottom lining on collusion. He could have said, or, or conspiracy, as, as I think we would all agree is the better term, he could have said there, well, that's something uh, for Congress and leave it to them. And it also, it doesn't strictly follow. I see your point, Melinda, but the, the idea that we can't indict, it doesn't follow from that, as the bar letter shows, that he can't reach a traditional prosecutorial judgment about whether the facts and law push us over the line to indictment, even if he doesn't take the final step. So, you know, it would, it's not a strictly speaking logical Step. Is it your view that, nevertheless, he's just so respectful of DOJ policies that he wouldn't want to get into, Candace, as you say, sort of advisory or hypothetical opinion land?
3: That would be consistent with my experience with him, is that I can't see him speculating or, I mean, anyone can go and look at how he answers questions when he's testifying before Congress, for example, to see that he doesn't delve into. The hypothetical or the speculative, I think the other thing um, with respect to Martha's point about the difficult questions of fact and law that uh, Barr cites, I think it's odd that Barr's letter, if you you could probably count the number of words that are actually quoted from the report, and many of them are the title of the report right. so to lift out, 20. I think difficult mm-hmm. questions are, are the only two words of that sentence that actually are quoted, so it will be very interesting, and I really hope that we'll see. The actual work of the special counsel because I I am not, I think the Barr letter raises more questions than answers about what that report really says. Well, and that that really ties
1: back into the 19-page memo that Bill Barr wrote a number of months ago, which we were talking about earlier almost seems like it's completely directed at Bob Mueller. And he says in that memo, you cannot a president cannot obstruct justice if he's carrying out functions that he has the authority to, to carry out, like firing the FBI director. So that may be one of the difficult questions of law that is referenced in the underlying report by Bob Mueller that would have been the result of a communication from Barr to Mueller's team carried out through the 19-page memo since he couldn't do it directly.
0: And now, so what about that? I mean, we have different portraits of Mueller in the public sphere. On the one hand, he's the dutiful soldier, stay in his lane, salute. On the other, you know, he's devoted his life to principles of of rule of law and, and making the prosecutorial judgments that he's asked to make. Let's assume for a moment that he made the determination that our best guess here seems to be that he did. This has to be for Congress. Now it turns out that the Attorney General uh, says otherwise, and we now have a sort of temporary, almost fait accompli, which is different from what Mueller intended. Is he, in reaction to that, a, well, that's the Attorney General, that's the way it goes, and thank you, thank you very much, sir? Or do you think he would be you know, somewhat out of joint. He worked the the most important task of his life, decided this needs to be served up to Congress. And he is at the last moment sort of countermanded by a political official. You know, do we think this is some matter for consternation on his part or just that's the way it goes with chain of command? Martha, you shaking your head.
2: Well, I just I have less experience directly under Bob than either Melinda or Candace, uh-huh. And my experience with Bob was just as a line AUSA making decisions on my cases. But, but um, my sense, and you, I, you guys tell me, but my sense is that he would just respect the hierarchy in the organization and the and and say, you know, okay. Yeah. That's, that's so the, the whole basis for my
0: decision is the DOJ policy. Oops, the, but the Attorney General disagrees. Well. You know, it's been a good 22 months, and uh, that's the way it goes. Would that be your sense?
3: No, I think that that he would believe that the Constitution and the policies are clear, and that this is something that there are ways that Congress can get that information. I think I cannot imagine that, although the Special Counsel Reg says that you have to submit a confidential report, that does not necessarily mean that that's the end of the story, and the Attorney General can make his decisions and his pronouncements about it, but I would think that he would, he's not going to do anything about it because he will stay within the bounds of what his authority is. But at the same time, there, we have a system of justice and we have a, a constitution that gives power to other branches of government to do something with this information.
1: Yeah. And I think one thing we will all agree on is that if he is feeling frustrated because the attorney general took that decision away, he would never say anything about it.
0: So that's a great point. And, so, and we assume, don't we, that if one day he's called to testify, and that would be up to the department probably whether to let him, he will be uh, just the facts, ma'am, four corners of the report, not, no emotional inflection or, or winks at all. Does everyone agree on that?
3: Yes, his his job in this was as fact finder, and he will add he will precisely and thoroughly and comprehensively, um, if if that comes to pass.
1: I think there's a great illustration of this uh, in that in, in the Comey Ashcroft bedside you know confrontation story. Jim Comey testified and described what happened at at uh, A. G. Ashcroft's bedside in the hospital, which many of us know about. When Bob Mueller – Bob Mueller has never said anything unless he had to. The one time I have seen him reference it, and it's because he was asked about it, I believe, in Congress. Candace, you may remember. And Bob did everything he could not to describe what happened that day. He, I, I don't remember it perfectly, but I think he essentially said, uh, yes, I was there. <laughs> and really, yeah. really refused to say anything else. And that's what he's—that's that's what he's. he's like. We've seen that.
0: Yeah. Although, um, I just want to push on that a little. I've worked with him a little, and I've certainly seen this side. I just wonder if there's not some exceptional aspect to at least these 22 months in the following way. I just think it's—it's it's clear and, and beyond any uh, measure of political partisanship that. This president has basically taken a wrecking ball to values of institutional um, uh, respect, rule of law, and things that Mueller has devoted his life to. Um, if that's true, well, let me, so I'd like to, sort of a two-part question, and we can wind up this part of the discussion with it. You know, do you think that, that in fact, Mueller has some, some uh, sense of a kind of damage – that uh, Trump and his approach to the whole prosecution may have occasioned, and if so, would that affect his work, sort of one iota or or not, um, Candice?
3: I think that he has an amazing ability to kind of com- compartmentalize in, a, in a. I say that in a good way that. He he is a human, right? We're we're talking about him as he's we're almost told, this. We're told almost <laughs> that he's you know robotically, um, but he is a human being, and so I am sure whether he shares it with his closest circles or not, he he has reactions, and yes, he has a incredible respect for this country and for the the government and processes, but at the same time. His job was a very specific job. And so as and we see that in his sending cases other places where if it went outside that mandate, he wasn't gonna delve into it. So I I think that you know he he can have those he can do both, right? He can strictly adhere to what his task at hand was and understand the limits of of his authority in this special counsel investigation, that that may be separate and apart from how he feels about the bigger picture of what's happening. Um, But again, that's not something that he would insert into his professional judgments.
1: I think another example of that is when he testified before the Senate when he was being confirmed as the FBI director. And he, he had left our office to go and do that, and so some of us were watching it on television. And it was the typical hearing where the the senators are pontificating, and you know it's not really a question, and it's they're just trying to make a point or have a sound bite. And I think, based on our interactions with Bob, I, I'm sure that he uh, thought it was silly. Um, and understood what was happening and that it really had nothing to do with him, you would have never known it from the look on his face or the answers to questions or certainly when he came back to the office after that was over. I mean, you never would have known. But just watching it and knowing how how, uh, strictly he follows rules and and protocols, that he would have found that frustrating, but he just didn't reveal it in any way.
0: It is really interesting. I mean, he's idolized in Washington. I well, certainly within this room, and I count myself uh, in that in that category. But what we're describing is basically, it's almost robotic in a sense. I mean, he's actually the guy who does play by the rules. This is the rule. I follow the rule. and you know, it's it's so exceptional, especially in Washington, D.C.
2: To me, it just reflects how much Bob really does reflect the institutions of government. And I mean, that's that's why he was the right person for this job. And that's um, why he answers questions, you know, when he's testifying the way he does. And uh, that's why I have so much respect for him, because I think that is really what In my experience, what really drives him is respect for the institution of government, for the institution of the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the Department of Justice.
0: Well, let me then push back, because obviously this president singularly has, um, uh, you know, not only not shared that view, but has done quite a bit to undermine it. you think that's something that Bob Mueller just sets to the side?
2: I I do. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's with. I don't think he sees that as part of his job to, you know, engage in that sort of partisanship, um, no matter what he thinks. And I have no idea. None of us have any idea what he thinks about President Trump, but um, because it's not really relevant at the end of the day to what job, uh, what the job that Bob was told to do.
0: Okay. Well, uh, that's I think all we have time for on this one. Those of you who've listened to Talking Feds know. We uh, now come to a feature that we call Sidebar in which we pass along some really basic information about federal prosecutorial practice that usually you don't get a chance to hear on the cable shows or elsewhere. And we try to do it with interesting people from other walks of life. And we're just about in, for me, the happy annual day of baseball beginning again. So today we've asked Dale Scott was a major league umpire for more than 30 years before he retired in 2017. Dale is going to tell us about a very pertinent uh, question to what we've been discussing, which is when you can disclose grand jury materials, which in fact is what the Department of Justice is now analyzing.
4: What is DOJ policy on grand jury secrecy? Grand jury proceedings are held in secret. Grand jurors, prosecutors, and court officials are prohibited from disclosing any matter before the grand jury. This includes the types of crimes being examined, the subjects of the investigation, the names of witnesses and jurors, and the evidence presented to the grand jury. It also includes any reports prepared by prosecutors that are based on grand jury evidence, and it applies even after the grand jury has concluded. Information obtained from another source does not become secret just because it was presented to the grand jury but the fact that it was presented to the grand jury would be secret. There are exceptions to the rule. First, it does not apply to grand jury witnesses who are generally free to discuss their testimony. Also, government prosecutors may use grand jury information to enforce federal criminal law and may disclose grand jury material to another grand jury. Finally, A court may authorize the disclosure of grand jury material in connection with certain other proceedings. Some courts have held that this includes congressional impeachment inquiries. Some courts have also held that they have inherent authority to order public disclosure of grand jury material in special circumstances, implicating great public interest. But that doctrine is controversial, and the Department of Justice disagrees with it. This is Dale Scott, retired Major League Baseball umpire. And now, like I said, for 32 years in the Major Leagues, play ball.
0: Thank you very much, Dale Scott. I am in the home of my second, more or less, adopted baseball team, the the Giants, second in my heart only to the Pirates, uh, and very excited about the beginning of the baseball season. Okay, but back to... Bob Mueller, I'd like to um, profit from this valuable opportunity to have you three here to talk a little bit about his decision-making processes. We've heard some of the names of the people who were um, with him on the special counsel's office and had reports and that some of them were more aggressive than others. There would obviously have been differences of opinions on key prosecutorial moves within the staff. How does Mueller, in your experience, go about making determinations when that arises? Does he talk it through with everyone? Does he look for one organic recommendation? What, what experience have you had with um, his trying to make final decisions in settings where perhaps his assistants have different points of view? Martha, you have any thoughts about this?
2: Um, well, I can only speak from my experience with him on um, the Lazarenko case when I was in the office and indicted that case. And in,
0: what was that basically?
2: Uh, Lazarenko was a former prime minister of Ukraine who we indicted on money laundering and wire fraud counts, and it was, it was a difficult case to to prove, and it was a difficult case to try to prosecute. Um, and Bob was involved in the prosecutorial decision in the sense that we would. I wrote a pros memo and then we made some presentations and Bob ultimately was the decision maker but my experience with Bob on that was that uh, yes he listens to other people but he's he's a very fast decider and he is a very firm decider there's not a lot of dithering he hears both sides and then you know the buck stops there and he makes a decision
0: um, he, Did he assign someone else to the other side you had a view did, did Was there a counter view presented to him?
2: There was, well, as a prosecutor, I mean, I present, I tried to present both sides. Here's here's the upsides. Uh, here's here's why we think the evidence is sufficient. Here's the difficulties with the case. And then there was a case agent and there were other supervisors involved. Um, so I, I think all prosecutors, in my experience, try to present both sides when they're making a decision whether to prosecute or decline a case. But so my experience with him was that he's... Um, uh, he listens um, and uh, listens to both sides, but at the end of the day, it's his decision. He makes a decision very fast, and that's that, you know.
0: You're shaking uh, your head, Melinda.
2: I,
1: I agree completely with how Martha describes that. I would I would add that he, um, in my experience with him, he gets in the weeds. Um, we had a morning meeting with him when he was the United States attorney. Every every morning at 8.30, all the supervisors came to his office and sat around, um, sat around the conference room table. Um, the meeting lasted no more than 15 minutes. So he is very fast. Um, he would go around the room and call on each of us to tell him what was happening in our sphere, in our respective spheres that day or that week. He wanted to know anything that significant was, uh, he wanted to know about anything significant going on in the office. And that was the way that he gathered that information. And he gathered it every day. And he got very, very into the weeds on things that he needed to. The other thing he did when he was the United States Attorney is he personally handled a death penalty case. And I think he missed uh, handling cases himself, and he he did that and was obviously very, very deeply involved in that case, and I'm sure that was one of the funnest things and more, most interesting things he felt he was doing as the United States Attorney. So he, he definitely wants to be in the weeds, and I, if I had to guess, he knew everything that was going on in the special counsel's office throughout the entire time.
0: Does that make sense, and does it vary at all uh, at, in terms of his tenure as FBI director?
3: So my experience at the FBI was that um, he definitely wanted to surround himself with people who were able to say no to him. I remember when I was talking about going over and being his special counsel, I spoke with John Pistol, who was the deputy director at the time. I'd never met him before. And the only question that I really remember from that conversation was, can you say no? Can you push back on Bob Mueller? And without missing a beat, I said, well, I wouldn't even be considered if i was if i couldn't do that right that is what he expects and you better be prepared so he wants to have a dialogue he wants to engage and if he he was very good at um, ferreting out people who tried to kind of know the an inch deep and not six feet deep because he did get into the details and he asked very difficult questions he knew what he needed to ask uh, so I think the question of how did he make decisions very thoroughly, very rigorously, um, I think probably a little different from prosecuting an individual case. I saw him making decisions that had much you know, broader impact and... Um, Policy ramifications and political ramifications, and so there might have been. I saw probably a little, <laughs> a little more uh, process and deliberation on his part. But I think the most important thing is that there. I think there's a little bit of a tendency for people to hear about this person who so follows the rules and is very confident and makes these decisions to think that he might want to surround himself with yes men and women, and that is as far from the truth as as could be. He wants intelligent, well. Uh, researched, uh, well-prepared people to engage in those conversations. And, and I know that some of the people on the special counsel staff are, are just that, and I was not surprised to see that he had chosen some of them.
0: Sounds a little scary, actually, the meetings with him. Was it sort of intimidating to have these discussions? And did, in fact, he ever offer up a question from the weeds that you didn't know the answer to?
1: Uh, I, I think a lot of people have described uh, having these kinds of interactions with him as intimidating you know I, 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 I think y- you had to be prepared and I and I think we all knew that and none of us uh, ever wanted to or did frankly walk into a meeting without being prepared because you knew what was coming.
0: Phenomenal. Uh, I think about you know his his incredible record of not leaking. And sure, that's partly his ethos, but obviously, everybody on the staff—it just get all the assistant special counsels—it just gets transmitted to, and you know, you would never even think about it. But in a lot of offices, you know, it doesn't work that way.
3: I was just going to say, in terms of a- being asked questions that you don't know the answer to, of course that happened, um, and to to me, to others, and the right answer is. I don't know, but I'm going to get back to you. And the number of people who tried to give some, any other version of an answer to that question, was, it, was, it was very painful to sit and watch. Um, and often those people were not, um, you know, he just would lose respect, I think, because that's, if you know, you know. If you don't know, go find out and come back to me quickly.
0: It speaks very well of, the, of you guys in the room that you were people who he called back Okay, I'd like to finish by talking about one possibly uh, controversial or a, a decision he made, or at least one where there might have been a difference of opinion in the office, uh, and that is his decision not to subpoena President Trump in the course of his investigation, uh, and particularly with respect to collusion, which is a uh, where intent matters so much. Uh, would you have any thoughts or surmises about why he would have made that decision and whether it would have been uh, something that he would have received conflicting recommendations about from the ranks? Um, let me start with you, Melinda.
1: Um, I I wonder if this goes back to Bill Barr's 19-page memo, because he says in the 19-page memo, you uh, the president who's carrying out. Uh, functions that he is allowed to carry out, like firing the FBI director, cannot obstruct justice. And he sort of th- takes that and says, and therefore you can't subpoena him to testify. Um, I'm not sure about that connection, but that's what he presents, what Bill Barr presents in that memo. And I wonder if uh, the special counsel's office concluded that uh, we're not going to take a position on obstruction. And for that reason, we're not going to subpoena the president.
0: But of course, Barr wrote that as, pri- as a private citizen. Would it be that Mueller just so respects Barr's view that he would take it as a, as a given? Because you know, at that time, and even and I think actually the decision not to subpoena even predates that, that memo.
1: Right. So this isn't rocket science. I mean, the special counsel's office may have figured out, probably likely figured out this these legal issues, understood these legal issues before seeing the memo from Bill Barr. Um, uh, so, you know, I, uh, this is one of those things that I don't know the answer to. Um, Do you think I, we ever possible. will? Uh, I doubt it.
0: Uh, Mueller being Mueller.
1: Well, that's, you know, then you're getting into, you know, sort of uh, prosecutive decisions that aren't normally public. And I would be surprised if we ever really find out why.
0: So you don't think it's going to be part of the report? We decided not to because...
1: It could be, but I, if I had to guess, I don't.
2: I don't think so, Martha. Um, I, I mean, we discussed this a little bit earlier. I, I, I think uh, you know one reason may be that normally, if Trump is the target of the obstruction investigation, normally you don't subpoena the target. And uh, if the only issue is somebody's intent, I don't know how much you gain by by having the person come in because intent is generally proven by circumstantial evidence. People who've committed a crime rarely say, oh, yes, I did that and I intended to do that and I, I intended something bad. So from my perspective as a prosecutor, I don't know what as a former prosecutor, I don't know really how much they would have gained by subpoenaing the president. Um, and as Candace pointed out earlier, it would have delayed the proceedings because now you get into questions of the Fifth Amendment privilege and, and whether it can be done at Executive all. Power. Yeah, all of that. So um, to me, it didn't seem surprising that they didn't subpoena the president. but Candace? I agree with, I think
3: Martha made some good points there with respect to subpoenaing and trying to interview and talk directly to a target of an investigation. I think that's a very uncommon luxury for a prosecutor to have that opportunity. And I've been surprised at how many commentators in the news have been raising the question of well, whether it's Trump or Manafort or any of the targets, why didn't they talk to them directly? It's, it's just not, there are, there are rules about it, and there's a Fifth Amendment privilege, but it's also not necessary to prove intent with a confession, uh, which would make the prosecutor's job really easy if everyone confessed, but often it's circumstantial evidence, as Martha pointed out.
0: I'll sound the sort of dissenting view at the uh, end here. It's possible, sure. if he uh, Mueller actually made an overture uh, to the president's council and they told him the president will take the Fifth Amendment, yes, then you would back off. It's not clear that that happened and of course he, he, he never actually called him a target. But I think it would have been a very uh, valuable exercise, not because he would have confessed, although we saw the president say on national television to Lester Holt, I did this because of Russia, that's you know very valuable, but just because the, the answers he would have given, especially to information that Bob Mueller had, but his lawyers didn't, could have been, I think, very uh, fruitful in providing circumstantial evidence of of intent I I, as far as we know he didn't actually make the effort uh, and that surprised me and I understand the point about the time it might have taken but I think it would have been fast-tracked probably would have been a few months and I think the force of the Clinton v Jones case and by the way speaking of Clinton he was of course famously subpoenaed and he wound up uh, testifying. But both that and Nixon cases put together, I think, would have sustained the subpoena unless it were uh, declined on Fifth Amendment grounds.
2: But those, well, those just strike me as uh, different in the sense that, in my recollection, I could be wrong, but on both Clinton and Nixon, the... the, the Reason to do the interview or to subpoena them is be, to have them talk about facts other than your subjective intent And if the only issue is Trump's subjective intent I don't see the point of issuing a subpoena to ask him. Hey What was your subjective intent when you did X or Y or Z? You prove that by circumstantial evidence and he's not I mean Who would come out and say oh well, I intended to obstruct the investigation into Russian collusion?
0: Yeah I think it would have been a somewhat more detailed <laughs> testimony than that. I agree um, Okay, uh, so we're at an end of what I think has been a really uh, terrific and illuminating discussion. We close things out here at Talking uh, Feds, putting uh, ourselves kind of on the line and taking a question from a listener that we are charged with answering in five words or fewer. Today's question comes from Will Partington who asks more of a personal question, who were the federal law enforcement officers of any capacity that inspired you to take up public service, and I'll add to that, take up or remain in public service in the name of the United States government? So five words or fewer, Ms. Haig.
1: Bob Mueller, Ernest Vernon Haig, my dad. Actually a movie, Prince of the City,
0: that's seven, also, you guys have no, no are supposed to be rule followers.
3: <laughs> We're not math people, so counting is hard. Um, mine may go over five. Uh, Janet Reno, J-term Williams College,
0: and I'm going with Jamie Gorelick. And in fact, let's the, I think I think uh, let's ex- expand on our five-word straight jacket here and give a little thought either about your dad or Bob uh, Mueller or. Treat Williams, I think, is Prince of the Cities. Well, or he was Williams was the actor, College. yeah. Yeah, so um, uh, any, anything to, to add for why these were your inspirations?
1: Well, I think everybody knows why Bob Mueller. Um, and with respect to my dad, he uh, grew up in poverty in Arkansas, got an ROTC scholarship to UCLA, um, uh, joined the Navy, became a Navy pilot, and always believed that the Navy saved his life. And he was the most patriotic person
2: I've ever known. So the movie Prince of the City, if I remember correctly, was it was the story essentially about a cooperating witness who was working with the U.S. attorney's office uh, in an office on the East Coast. And I think what inspired me about the movie to go into the U.S. attorney's office in particular was the idea that um, the, the power that you have as a United States attorney or an assistant United States attorney um, enables you to do more good for the public than you can as a defense attorney or a civil attorney or anybody else and and so for that reason I thought if you if you get really good people in that office they can do much more good than in any other job.
3: And for me I mentioned Williams College because Williams has a January study program where you can design your own course and my senior year I designed a course to go down and work for Janet Reno when she was in Miami in, in the state's attorney's office and very similar to what Martha was saying it was very clear to me both her passion for what she was doing her dedication and the incredible reach she had in affecting that community and I spent a fair amount of time in the juvenile justice branch and she to the day she died kept saying that it was time for me to go fix the juvenile justice system which I have failed her on that but I'll I'll keep working on it um but she was definitely inspiring and I think she used her public service for so much good and served so such a wide breadth of people.
0: I was there at Maine Justice when she came in and she addressed everyone and she just said, we're here to do the right thing. That's what we're gonna, that's the question we're gonna ask ourselves at every turn. Um, Jamie Gorelick, who was her deputy, so smart, so fair, and so candid so um, lacking in the kind of BS that seems to be the the coin of the realm in Washington, and yet, nevertheless, incredibly um, effective. Okay, thank you very much to Melinda Haig, Martha Birch, and Candace Kelly, and thank you very much to our listeners for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com. And we want to hear from you. Please submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers the feds will keep talking talking feds is produced by jenny josephson dave moldavon and rebecca Lopatten. david lieberman is our contributing writer production assistance by sarah phil thanks to the incredible philip glass who graciously lets us use his music and special thanks to Dale Scott, recently retired Major League umpire. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Litman. See you next time.